Father, we want to thank you so much tonight, Lord, for the Word of God. Father, we thank you it's the imperishable Word of God. It's that incorruptible seed that is just dwelling within us. Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit just comes upon the Word and makes it live and makes it grow and makes it develop, Father. And Father, it's so wonderful to know that your Holy Spirit is like water pouring on the seed and the seed giving birth and coming forth in wonderful fruit. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that all the things we should study tonight will enable us to be effective ambassadors and witnesses for Christ. Father, I just pray for all those people on this earth who don't know that they have a saviour in heaven, who really loves them, who's given himself for them, who has taken all their sins, all their problems, and who really, really cares for every burden that's on their heart. And Father, I would pray in Jesus' name that we as Christians should be so on fire for you with such a zeal and a burden with burning within our hearts that we should do all things to your glory, that Jesus may be manifested even in our flesh, that others may look and see and taste and know that Jesus is so good and so wonderful and the saviour of body as well as soul and spirit. And Father, I would ask in Jesus' name that you'll take our words tonight, Father, and really pour your anointing upon them that they might be life to all that hear, that the dead may be raised, praise God, by the going forth of the word of God. And Father, and all those people who may be listening, Father, who have believed that they've lost their salvation or who are in danger, I just pray, Father, that the words tonight may act as wonderful living words, Father, to set them free from the bondage that's been upon them. In the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Praise God. Praise the name of Jesus. We come tonight to the third and the last of the salvation security trio. Now, it is important that if you listen to the tapes of these talks, that you begin at the beginning, that is, with the first tape on eternal security. You remember on the first tape, I dealt with those calls for holiness that are contained within the Word of God. And I dealt with how the Bible actually does call you to holiness. Does it threaten or does it lead? And we saw that it inspires you to holiness. It doesn't threaten from behind with a big wooden stick. And last week, I dealt with all of those, uh, those uh, scriptures, or some of the scriptures anyway, that... Uh, actually say that you are eternally secure and state the positive side of the coin. I dealt with some of the principles too, if you remember. And we tried to see by logic, as well as by reference to certain of the scriptures, that in fact a believer is secure in his salvation. Tonight, we come to the talk that actually most people, of course, are waiting for. Because there is a large body of Christians who believe that the Christian is in danger of losing his salvation. In other words, they deny the fact of eternal security. And tonight I'm dealing with uh, some of the scriptures that, that, that may be quoted at you or that they may quote at you. And I'm trying uh, to actually divide them up into topics so that if you find one that I haven't dealt with tonight, because I can't deal with them all, you'll actually know where it goes and why the interpretation is wrong. Now remember this. One of the camps is correct. Either you are eternally secure, or you're not eternally secure. You can't be in the middle on this. You're either one or you're the other. And as we know that the Bible is one harmonious body of truth, without contradiction in it, 
then we must see that one or other camp is misinterpreting Scripture somewhere or other. By the way, those people who say that the Bible is full of contradictions are normally people who, uh, who haven't studied the Bible in depth or who, are, who know a little bit about it. And a little knowledge is a terribly dangerous thing. You just meet a Christian with a little knowledge and you're in the hands of someone quite dangerous who can actually be misled on every count. We've got to know the Word of God and we've got to study it. Now, last week we dealt with some of the scriptures, as I've said, that deal with eternal security. And I think you'll, you'll have seen last week that actually most of the scriptures were totally without another interpretation. For example, when it said that, that all believers will never perish, it's very hard to interpret that any other way, but never perish. Never means never. Absolutely at no time at all will they be in the position of perishing. And you'll notice it wasn't followed with a conditional clause. It didn't say they will never perish if they do this or if they don't do this. It said they will never perish. Now, that's without further interpretation. All right? Uh, we had others. For example, none shall pluck them from my hand. None shall pluck them from my hand. And the word none meant no, not one person, creature, demon, anything is able to pluck them from my hand. And they were the words of Jesus. You'll remember, he then went on to say, and the Father is greater than all, and none shall pluck them from his hand. So there are two hands around you, you see. It's very hard to interpret that any other way, but that none shall pluck you from his hand. Then you've got other scriptures, of course, that we dealt with. You're sealed. Now notice it didn't say that you're sealed until you sin or until the next time you get out of fellowship. It said you're sealed until the day of redemption. Praise God. And what's the day of redemption? It's the day that Jesus comes for you. So you're sealed right until that time. We saw in Romans where it said none, nothing at all shall separate them from the love of God. And it lists certain things, tribulations, trials, persecutions, this creature, life, death, nothing at all shall separate from the love of God. And we had all sorts of others. Now, you see, they're very difficult to interpret any other way. But if they are correct, then the scriptures that are thrown against us must be the ones that are in some way misinterpreted. And as we'll see tonight, uh, most of the scriptures are in some way misinterpreted or uh, misapplied. Now, this is a, a very important truth. The Bible is without contradiction, definitely. And one or other is wrong. Actually, of course, uh, generally there are three major uh, fallacies or three major errors. One, they misapply the scripture. Secondly, they quote it out of context. Or thirdly, they quote scriptures at you that have nothing to do with salvation at all. They're on other subjects. And they try and bring you into bondage by a misquotation of Scripture. For example, and I've had this quoted at me, but brother, the Bible says that it is possible to fall from grace. Is that true or is that not true? Yes, it's perfectly true. The Bible does say that you're in danger of falling from grace. Oh dear. But you see, it's quoted out of context and it has nothing to do with salvation. Absolutely not one thing. Let's have a quick look at that verse, shall we? Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 4. Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 4. Where we've got it. And notice it's the very end of the verse. 
Now, beware of any Christian that throws a verse out at you. Do you know there are some parts of the Bible that actually are not correct? I'd better explain what I mean before you all uh, throw me from the platform. Um, there are passages of Scripture where a false prophet is quoted, you see, aren't there? Where actually Jeremiah or Isaiah, one of the other prophets, is actually opposing a false prophet. And all the false prophet's words are quoted. Now, if you take those out of context, you're in trouble. Because you are actually quoting a false prophet who's talking nonsense. And of course, out of context, you don't see that Jeremiah is about to say, you foolish man, or you false prophet, and then give the correct viewpoint. Do you know Job's comforters? There were three born-again believers, that's true. But they had no idea of biblical principles. And they tried to bring Job into bondage with anti-biblical principles. So beware of any man who quotes a scripture. Always check it out in context, and you'll find it probably doesn't mean that at all. All right, now at the end of verse 4, ye are fallen from grace. There it is. Oh dear. Yeah, but what's the context about? Has it got anything to do with salvation? It has nothing to do with salvation. What's it actually talking about? Well, the Galatian churches had received teachers in who were telling them that in order to be saved, you mustn't only believe You've also got to start living under the law. And he said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says. And notice how the chapter begins. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There it is. And this whole passage has to do with how to live as a Christian. The modus operandi of the Christian life is what this is to do with. Nothing to do with salvation whatsoever. And they'd said to these people, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be born again. And he says to them, let's read it, verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you're going to submit to circumcision, then listen, you've also got to obey the whole law, he says. There we are. And you Christians born under grace and living by grace submitting yourselves again unto the law. He says, that's ridiculous. Verse 4, Christ has become of no effect if you do that. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And any man who tries to live under his rules and regulations and establish his righteousness is fallen from grace. How do we live? Under the law? No. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. Hallelujah. The law tried to put sin to death in me. Did it succeed? It didn't. Maybe sin more. And your self-righteousness will make you sin more. That's what the Bible is saying. Right. How is sin dealt with? By grace inside. Hallelujah. Praise God. By living in the Spirit. That's how sin's dealt with. And if you're not doing that, you're fallen from grace. And when you get to heaven, he'll tell you too where you went wrong. Praise God. Now, there's just a simple Simple little verse that shows what we're talking about. Beware of anyone who quotes things out of context. Now, of course, I don't have time to deal with every single verse. So I'm going to try and deal with the difficult verses tonight. The others you should be able to take in your stride when they come. And to deal with them, I've divided them up into four major principles. And I've added a fifth, which is called miscellaneous. And that means if you can't fit a verse into any of the first four, tuck it in miscellaneous and have a look at it. All right? And I'm going to deal with four basic principles, and we'll see verses that demonstrate the principles. All right, now, this is why they go wrong. First of all, and number one, they talk about passages 
that deal with fruit and with the judgment of believers' works. And what they do, instead of keeping them to fruit and judgment of believers' works, they try and make them talk about salvation. And you can't. What is fruit? It's production. Do you know that you're born again to produce? You are born to reproduce. That's what you're here for. You're born to have children for God. You're born to be ambassadors for God. That's what it's all about. And some passages deal with the production of the Christian life and with the judgment of that production. They have nothing to do with salvation whatsoever. And if you apply them to salvation, you've gone wrong. And I'm going to take some of these. Let's start off, first of all, with the parable of the sower. Now, I'm going into Matthew's Gospel for this, but the principle is the same no matter which Gospel it's found in. All right? Matthew 13. Chickens, by the way, are designed to produce eggs. When you grade the eggs, you're not grading the chickens. It's important to see that. Uh, when you're judging the grapes from a vine, you're not judging the vine. And these passages have to do with judgment of fruit, not judgment of the individual believer. And we come to Matthew 13, where we have, of course, the parable of the sower. And it's dealt with in several verses. I'm not going to deal with it in detail tonight. I've dealt with it elsewhere. But I'm going to zip across from the first few verses to about the verses that follow verse 18. And you'll remember there are four types here. There are four sections to this parable. Let's begin with the first. You've got a sower who's sowing seed. There it is. The seed is the word of God. And verse 4, this is case number 1. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. That is the downtrodden path at the side of the field. And it normally became very hard and encrusted in the land of Israel. And the fowls came and devoured them up. Now there you've got a piece of ground. The word of God bounces onto it and bounces off and the birds come down and they feed on it. That's the first case. And if you go to verse 19, you get the interpretation of that. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Now that's case number one. Case number two, verse five. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. Now here the seed falls into the ground, but there isn't much depth of earth. And forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. That's the second. And in verse 20, we see what it is. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. That's immediately the word anon. And immediately with joy receiveth it. Verse 21. Yet hath he no root in himself. But dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth, because of the word, immediately he is offended. And that's number two. Number three is then given, and that's verse seven. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And the interpretation, verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he become unfruitful. And the last case, which I hope this room is absolutely full of, 
uh, comes then in verse 8, but other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Whosoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And the interpretation then, verse 23, but he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which is the point of this Bible study tonight. Not only to hear the word, but to understand it so that you can do the word. Fine. Which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundred, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. Now there it is. Now, what is this passage about? It's about fruit. The whole conclusion of the passage and the climax of the passage is someone who's bearing lots and lots of fruit. And you'll notice that it's only the first category that's the unbeliever. In the first category, the word of God comes along and it bounces off. And it's not long before the devil says, oh, I'm not leaving that around. It might spring up sometime. I don't want that. And he swoops down and he takes the word away. In all the other three cases, the word is actually received into the ground. And once the seed's gone into the ground, it doesn't just lay there dormant. It starts producing. And, and we have then three types of production that come up. And by the way, I know Christians in all three of these categories. I really do. So do you. That's what it's talking about. Look at the first. Received into stony places. There we are. Has no depth of soil. No root in himself. And he endures for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises, he's gone. And that's the type of Christian, oh, they start off absolutely on fire for Christ. And you're saying, my, they're going to be mightily used. But all of a sudden, they learn that their friends don't like them anymore. And they have to make a choice. And production falls to zero. They have no production whatsoever. And this is here to warn Christians that, look, you are capable of doing this. Don't do it. There we are. The next one, of course, um, one that, the seed that grows up among thorns. And look what happens in the care of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and become unfruitful. And those Christians who still have ambition or still desire something from the word, world or still desire something from their friends or respect or something like that, it's not long before the fruit starts drying up in their lives. And that's true. But some seed falls on good ground. Result, production. It has nothing to do with salvation. And don't you believe any person that takes this out of context and says, you see, they fell away. The seed was still in the ground. The seed had still taken root. Do remember that. So that one has to do with production. Perhaps the hardest one for Christians to sort out, and that's why I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on it, is John and chapter 15. So would you turn now to John 15, where we don't have a corn, corn ear, but we have a vine talked about. And it's the story of the vine. All right? <clears throat> and we're doing all of this through to verse 6. Praise God. Let me read it through. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. 
If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Fine, now let's take it from the beginning. I am the true vine. Now Israel was always talked of as the, vine, as the vineyard in the Old Testament. Who was the true vine? It was the Lord Jesus. He's the only, one worth having, uh, the only one worth having growing in your garden. He's the only one that will produce everlasting fruit. The only one we should make space for in our lives. He's going to produce fruit that's going to redound to his own glory for all of eternity. And the father is the husbandman. He's looking after Jesus, especially when he was on the earth. Now, verse 2, and here we come in, and we're the branches. Here's the analogy. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now it looks there, doesn't it, as if the branches that don't bear fruit are removed and thrown out. That's what it seems to be. But actually, the word taketh away is not two words as it is in English. It's one word as it is in Greek. And the word is the word aero. I better spell it for you because you're going to spell it wrong otherwise. It's not a chocolate bar. A-I-R-O. And it's the word aero. A-I-R-O. Now the word aero has two meanings. And by the context you know the meaning of the word aero. If it has a preposition with it, like to throw out or cast, or something like that, which happens to be a verb, a verb or a preposition, then it does mean to take away. For example, could I give you a few examples, and we'll see this. In Luke, don't turn to these, but write them down. In Luke 8.12, you've got the other passage that deals with the parable of the sower. And it says, and the devil comes and taketh away the word out of their hearts. Now there you've got arrow with the word out of. So that means to take out of their hearts. The word is taken right away. In Matthew 22, verse 13, all right, talking about an unbeliever here, taketh him away and cast him into outer darkness. Now that's obviously true. You take away and you throw. That's Matthew 22:13. Matthew 24:39, the flood came and took them all away. Now all of those are error. But if you don't have a preposition or a verb that shows that it's movement, it has another meaning altogether. And the word arrow in its second meaning means to lift up. Let me show you one passage, please. Keep your finger in the place and turn to this passage. In 1 Timothy, and chapter 2, verse 8, you have the word arrow in the Greek. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. And I think you'll agree, you'll be hard put to make this mean taketh away. You'd be very hard put indeed. Verse 8 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. Now, if, if you try and make that take away, you've got problems. I will that men pray everywhere, taking away holy hands, without wrath and doubting. No, no. There's no preposition or verb there that shows its movement. And so, what have you got? You've got lifting up holy hands, and we ought to do it, by the way, much more than we do when we pray. All the early Christians used to raise their hands to heaven when they prayed, whenever they prayed. Fine. Uh, a few others, and we won't turn to these, but have a look. In Luke 17, 13, they lifted up their voices. Error. Does not mean they took their voices away. John 11:41. you've got Jesus, and he's about to tell Lazarus, come forth. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven. 
arrow. There it is. And the word arrow is used of lifting the baskets of bread, or lifting the cross, or lifting stones, or picking up serpents. It's to lift. And what is, what is it here? It's to lift every branch in me that beareth not fruit. He lifts. He raises up. Now, in the ancient world and in Israel, all the vines were grown on trellises. And for the winter months, when they didn't produce, they were all put flat on the ground. But as soon as spring came, what happened? They were all lifted up from the ground. And they built trellises, they do in Sussex. And the vines are trained to spread upwards. And when a person becomes a branch and is saved, God always lifts them up from the ground. Praise God. And sets them up where he is in heavenly places, that they might bring forth fruit. You see, with the vine, if you've got a branch hanging down, the sap is restricted and the fruit either is non-existent or is very small indeed. The answer is to lift that particular branch up. And as soon as you lift it up, the fruit starts growing. So any branch that does not bear fruit, what does he do? Throw it out? He does not throw it out. He lifts it up. Praise God. And that's quite right. And what then? And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. To purge means to clean it. He cleans it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And that's the purpose. Do you see, by the way, the emphasis here is fruit, not salvation. Nothing to do with salvation in this passage. He purges it. And they used to get covered with dust and insects and all the rest. And soon these could choke the very life out of the plant. And so, with us, if we bear forth, bear forth fruit, Satan will try and get us dirty. What do we do? We start cleaning. And the cleaning process goes on. How do we get clean? Verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Not through your own deeds. Not through what you can do. But through the word. Why are we met having Bible study tonight? To get clean for more fruit. That's what it's all about. Alright? And if you're producing a lot of fruit, praise God. The word of God's here to start cleaning you up. Hallelujah. Alright, let's press on. Verse 4, again the emphasis is fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. That's right. And if we are out of fellowship with God, we're not producing fruit. That's, that's perfectly obvious. We have to abide in Jesus, which means receiving the righteousness of Christ and being in fellowship with him. Then the fruit starts flowing from our lives. Verse 5, emphasis on fruit again. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. There it is. And now we come to verse 6. Let me read it through. This is one sentence, remember, in, in the English and the Greek. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them. Could you cut out the word men for a start, please? The word men isn't there at all. It's angels uh, that gather the, the people for judgment, and it's also God himself who gathers our works for judgment. All right, so it certainly isn't men. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now let's take the first part. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And that is a, a description of a man out of fellowship. Do you know, if you get out of fellowship with God, first of all, you're going to experience a withering in your life. 
You really will. Before you were saved, you could enjoy the world. After you're saved, you can no longer enjoy the world. Try as you may. And if you do try and enjoy the world, you start dying inside. You really do. And soon you'll become gnarled up and really, really out. As far as the world is concerned and as far as God is concerned. And this casting forth is out of fellowship. And you'll find that if sin continues in a believer's life, the father is out of fellowship as far as the son is concerned. And discipline will continue until it becomes maximum. And I'll be dealing with maximum discipline later on. So remember the first part of that verse when we come to maximum discipline. Now what about the second part of the verse? And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now that looks bad, doesn't it? That looks very bad indeed. How are we going to deal with it? Well, unfortunately, most people who read their Bibles never read quite hard enough. And because they don't read hard enough, and because they don't actually look into it in detail enough, they find verses like this very difficult. Have you noticed something about the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse? And it's all one sentence. You get a change of number in the middle of the verse. Very bad English, and may I say, very bad Greek. Look at this. If a man, that's singular, if a man abide, singular, not in me, he, singular, is cast forth, singular, as a branch, singular, and is withered, singular. And men gather them, plural. Now that's funny. And cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, that's very important. In Greek, you never get a change in number as you have in this particular Greek sentence unless it's telling you something. And what it's telling you is that the they and the them refer to something else than what was at the beginning of the sentence. May I give you an example in English? And I think you'll get the, the point. I'm going to give you two sentences and I think you'll understand it. The first sentence, I used to grow rose bushes. I didn't, by the way. That's just a sentence. I used to grow rose bushes. That's the first one. Second, I had a helper until they dug them up. I had a helper until they dug them up. I had a helper, singular, until they dug them, plural, up. Now, what does the them refer to? The helper? No, couldn't possibly do that. If it was the helper, it would have been, I had a helper until they dug him up. <laughs> That's not so at all. What does the them refer to? It refers to the rose bushes. And if you get a change of number in a sentence, it shows that the thing you're talking about has been talked about previously. Right? Can I say those again? I used to grow rose bushes. I had a helper until they dug them up. The them there refers to the rose bushes. And what you've got here is the same change in number. And the them referred to is not the man who doesn't abide. What is it? It's the fruit that he's producing. And what it's saying is, you've got a believer who's out of fellowship, and the fruit is gathered up and cast out and is burnt. Now, if you know your Bibles, that shouldn't come as any shock to you. Because, and don't turn to the passage... In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, you have what's called the judgment of believers' works. When a believer dies, he himself will not be judged, but what will happen? All his works that he's ever done in his whole life are all gathered up, and they're taken up into heaven, and the fire's lit underneath them. 
And what happens? The gold and the silver and the precious stones, they go through. They're all right. The wood, hay and stubble are all burnt up and there's nothing left. If you want a greater detail on this subject, then I suggest you come or listen to the tape in the second series called Mud Huts or Palaces, in which I deal with the judgment of believers' works. Now look, this is so accurate. Can't you see that in verse 6, it is deliberate that you've got a change of number? It's deliberate so that no one can confuse it or confuse the issue, which everyone does with absolute regularity. The plural then refers to the production of the believer. And you shouldn't be surprised at that because the whole context is on fruit. Every single part. By the way, verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. From beginning to end it's on fruit, and in the middle it's on fruit as well. Now there it is. And if we get out of fellowship, what does it mean? The grapes that we produce are rotten, or hard, or small, or non-existent. And they'll all be gathered up, and they'll be burnt. There we are. With this in mind, let's go to another difficult passage, which talks of exactly the same thing, and people seem to find it difficult. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7, and onwards. Hebrews 6, 7, and onwards. Now, in this passage, the earth happens to be the believer. All right? And the earth is producing. Beginning verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that comes oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. Here you've got a believer who's in fellowship and receiving the showers of blessing. And notice what it says, that receiveth oft, oft, the showers that come upon it. And why does he say oft? Because it's often that God showers you with blessing. Now, we as believers ought to say, yes, I'm living in the blessing of God. Every day I'm receiving the marvellous showers of blessing coming from heaven. Because, listen, every day he wants to pour them on, on you. That's why it says in Lamentations chapter 3, new every morning are thy mercies. There's a new rain shower every morning for us. And what happens? This earth produces something. What's the passage about? Production. And it produces, it says herbs. The word herbs actually means vegetables. And here the believer uh, is like a vegetable garden. It produces wonderful vegetables fit for God. Verse 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. And verse 8 then deals with a believer who's out of fellowship with God. And by the way, what earth is it that produces thorns and briars? It's desert land that produces these things. <clears throat> or mainly desert land, certainly in Israel at this time. And earth that does not receive the regular showers of blessing starts producing other things. Thorns and briars. And the word comes rejected. What is the word rejected? It does not mean thrown out, and it does not mean rejected. It's the Greek word, and we'll see it just after this passage, adokimos, A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S, adokimos. And adokimos simply means not approved. The earth that brings forth 
thorns and briars isn't approved by God. Definitely not. That's why it's, the works are burned up. And notice what it says, and is nigh unto cursing. And it doesn't say there, it is cursed. It says it's nigh unto cursing. And why is it nigh unto cursing? I'll tell you why. Because the world is going to be judged for producing thorns and briars. And the tragedy is that blood-bought believers, Christians who are saved by grace, have the same output as non-Christians and people of the world. And this is a reference to those passages where it says, now look, the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And he says, don't you know that the judgment of God's coming on the earth because of these things? And what he's trying to get over is, you're not going to be judged, so how dare you produce the same fruit as them? It's a disgrace for someone who's ending up in heaven to be producing worldly deeds. It's an absolute disgrace. And that's what the Bible's saying. And here, that land that's doing it is nigh unto cursing. Look at this, whose end is to be burned. And this is what we see in Sussex occurring after every harvest. What happens? They're left with all the stubble. So what do they do? They burn the fields. Does that mean they burn the fields? No, it doesn't. It means they set fire to what's growing in the field. Now, the earth isn't consumed, otherwise the farmers would never use it next year. Already, at this time of the year, I'm seeing those fields which were on fire two weeks ago being ploughed up, ready for next year's harvest. And that's what it means. And I assure you that there will be Christians trying to get into heaven with their good deeds. And Christians trying to get into heaven with all the things they've done for God. And I'll tell you, there's only one way in. God's got to burn you down first. And he'll burn all the stubble off you. Yes, our God is a consuming fire and we will get into heaven but by fire, as the Bible says. Why? Good deeds are as filthy rags as far as God is concerned. And God says, you can't come in here with those filthy rags. I've got to get them off you. What's the end? He's got to burn them up. And then the believer will say, well, well, that's a relief and a weight off my mind and up I come. And that's what this is a reference to. And there it says, whose end is to be burned. What's burnt? The production is burnt, of course. And notice verse 9, if you're not clear on it. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we speak thus. He says, I've taught like this, but I know you're different, he's saying. That's what he's saying. And things that accompany salvation are all the works of the Spirit, all the fruit of the Spirit, those, those works which actually were redound to the honour of God in heaven. And if you're still not clear, verse 10 clarifies it even more. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love which ye have showed towards his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Alright, now there's that passage dealt with. Do you see, all of these look dangerous until you see them in context. As soon as you get them in context, and as soon as you apply other passages that you know, you've got the understanding of the passage. Let's go back to verse 8, where we see this word adokimos, not approved, and I just want to deal with one verse where adokimos is used, and sometimes you get this thrown up in your face. All right? 1 Corinthians, and chapter 9, verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9, and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. Now, the whole context is on athletics. Every part of it is on athletics. And we come to verse 27. But I keep under my body 
and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And some people actually believe that here, Paul was thinking that he could lose his salvation and end in the lake of fire. The man who'd done more for the church than any other human being had done apparently was saying, after all this, I might be thrown out and burnt up in the lake of fire. A castaway. What word is it? It's not a castaway. It's a dokimos. And all he's saying is, I'm concerned, he said, lest having preached to you and got you going on the right path, I myself am disqualified as far as my works are concerned. And I'm not approved. There we are. And in the passage, study to show thyself approved, what have you got? You've got dokimos. Adding an A to a Greek word makes it a negative. And here you've got adokimos, and that's all it means. It has nothing to do with salvation, that's all. He's talking about approval of works and the judgment of works. All right, now if you find any other passages that should go under there, you sort them out, dig them out, and put them under that particular heading. Right, now we pass on to number two. And under number two, we come to passages that deal with the discipline of believers. And you'll get an awful lot of Christians who will quote these passages at you. And they have to do with discipline. You remember last time we saw that once you're saved, you become a child of God. We're sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the moment you become a son of God and enter into that kindred relationship, he, like a good father, starts disciplining his children. And he will discipline you. And listen, until the day you die, he's going to discipline you. And that is not. The discipline doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Quite the contrary. It means that you haven't lost your salvation. Because if you'd lost your salvation, he wouldn't be your father anymore. And it's none of his business. You don't discipline another man's children. You see? But God does discipline his own children. And it's very important that he does. And so all these passages that deal with the discipline of the believer prove that we have eternal security and certainly do not disprove it. Now, uh, I've put two down here. In the second series, I'm doing two tapes on the judgment of the believer. And in detail, I will deal with two passages. So I'm not going to cover them at all tonight. The first is Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 15. And 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 31. But I want to take one verse which causes some Christians a lot of difficulty. And it's 1 John 5 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. 1 John 5, 16. Where we come to the sin unto death. As you all know by now, having heard the unforgivable sin, the sin unto death is not the unforgivable sin. Something else altogether. Now let's have a look at it. Verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, here you come to this odd sin, a sin unto death. Here is some sin or other that will cause the the believer to die physically. There it is. Now, what is the sin unto death? Sin unto death is maximum discipline from the Father. The discipline becomes so great that finally you lose your life. 
In the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, the particular sin there was they were taking communion without due respect to the Lord. And it says, because you're taking it wrongly, some of you are sick and some even sleep. Some have even died. Now, the sin unto death is this. It's being out of fellowship time and time and time again, continuously, despite all the warnings that you're getting from God, despite all the warnings you're getting from brothers and sisters, and despite even severest discipline. May I say, I have known one or two believers in this category. And I have seen how they've gone from bad to worse. They've come to the place where they're disciplined so hard that they're miserable, they're depressed, they're ill. And still they won't submit to the word of God or to the discipline of God. And I've seen them go down and downhill until finally, in some cases, they've actually died. Now it's not... Uh, a common thing, of course, and it takes years and years and years normally of constant, constant asking by the Lord. We have a case in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, all right? And they, we don't know the background to that, but apparently for years they've been really getting away with murder and God had been disciplining them. And finally, they did something that was the last straw and God disciplined them in a maximum sort of way. By the way, we have no one in the fellowship who's, fellowship who's anywhere near the sin unto death. Before the sin unto death, you're going to have me shouting at you for about a year and a half. <laughs> Praise God. All right? So certainly, uh, this doesn't cover anyone in the fellowship. This is someone who actually gets so out of fellowship, he even rejects the word of God as his final basis of authority. You see? And it's tragic. Now the question is, does the sin unto death mean you lose your salvation? Well, obviously not. Because if God is still judging you up to the point that you die then you're still his son when you die. Praise God. Do you see that? That is just simple logic. And that's it. So finally you get to heaven and that's the only place you're safe. And God takes you there. And I'm so glad, you know, that uh, actually this life is not as important as eternity which is to come. And in eternity you spend all the time face to face with the Lord. And then the nice and spire will be up there when you get there. And listen, there'll be no point in the finger saying, that's in the nice and sapphire. Because what? Their dead works will have been burnt up just like yours will have been. And, but there is a lovely scripture that shows this. All right, So let's have a look at a character in the Old Testament who committed the sin unto death. And I'm talking about Saul. Now Saul was a believer. King Saul really was a believer. He reigned for 40 years. Only one year was he in fellowship with God. For 39 years he was out of fellowship for God. Some of us aren't even 39 years old. And he'd been out of fellowship for 39 years before finally God had had enough. All right? After the first year, he was rejected for doing something. And then finally, we come to the place where he commits the sin unto death. Do you know he passed a law that all mediums and all people who know and all peeping spirits should be cast from the land. And his sin unto death was he disguised himself and he went to a witch of Endor. He needed some advice, and God had turned his back on him. So he thought, right, if God won't give it to me, I'm going to this witch, and I'm going to ask Samuel. Samuel had died some years before. And so Saul says, well, I'll go to this witch, and she can get him up, and I can have a chat. Much to the witch's surprise, he comes up. Never had that happen before. <laughs> and it's never happened since, may I say. Samuel is the only person who has been dead, who has been brought back in this particular way. I'm not talking about resuscitation, uh, like Lazarus. 
All right? Samuel actually is allowed to come from Abraham's bosom and to appear fleetingly. He never did it again. And this is the only time ever that it's occurred. And spiritualists who say that they are in contact with dead relatives are listening to lying and ventriloquist demons. And they need to be rejected out of hand. And absolutely. Let's have a look and see what Samuel's words to Saul are. They're very interesting. And this is in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 28. All believers, you remember, went into paradise or Abraham's bosom. And so up from Abraham's bosom comes Samuel. And he's going to tell Saul a thing or two, and not what Saul wanted to hear either. And verse 15, we'll begin, we'll read the, what, the words of Samuel to Saul. And this is the sin unto death that he's talking about. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I'm sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. When Samuel was alive, Saul didn't want him. Now he's dead, he wants him. Quite typical. I love that phrase, that why have you disquieted me? Meaning he was in perfect peace where he was. And coming back to this earth has caused him disquiet. Christian, there's no need to fear death. It's far more wonderful than what you're experiencing at the moment. Hallelujah. Verse 16. Then Samuel said, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee, and is become thine enemy? He's so out of fellowship. And the Lord hath done to him as he spoke by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbour, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. And verse 19 is the verse we want. Moreover, and here he's telling him you're going to die. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. Hallelujah. Where? In paradise. And this is like the words of Jesus when he turned to the man who'd been saved on the cross near to him, and he says, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it's the exact same phrase. So where's Saul? Well, he's up in heaven at the moment, because when Jesus died, he emptied Abraham's bosom and took them through into heaven. So what's the sin unto death? Loss of salvation? Definitely not. Proof of salvation, actually, and proof of eternal security. Hallelujah. Right, well, that's one of ours, then. We can add that to ours. Should have been done last week. Okay, now, so far, so good. Oh, hallelujah. We're absolutely safe. It's lovely, isn't it, these nitty things. Have you heard me say before that the Bible is the book of prepositions? With me is the preposition of importance here. We come on now to number three. These are passages that are just taken out of context. I've already talked about some. Taken totally out of context, and they'll be thrown at you. Always open your Bible, ask them where the verse is found, or turn to it yourself and put it neatly into its context and you'll be all right. The Bible has no contradictions in it anywhere. Okay, and I'm going to turn to Matthew 24, verse 13. The equivalent passage is Matthew 10.22, but I won't deal with that tonight. It's exactly the same principle. Matthew 24 and verse 13. <clears throat> and all it says here, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. 
And you all hear preachers saying, and brethren, unless we endure to the end, we're not going to be saved. That's what they say. And I've got it from Scripture, he says. Yes, he sure has got it wrong from Scripture too. First of all, if you know your Bible, the word saved doesn't only have to do with salvation. Sutso also means to be delivered, to be saved from the hands of the Philistines. Nothing to do with eternal security or salvation or anything. It means to be delivered. And you can tell by the context. Now, what's the whole of chapter 24 about? It's about a time when the Jewish evangelists are very hard-pressed in the tribulation. They are surrounded with enemies on every side. They are faithfully preaching the gospel, and they have done for seven years of the tribulation. And things are black, and they are tough. And the armies have swept in, and you know thousands of Jewish believers will be killed and massacred and martyred. Thousands. But this is a promise. And there'll be some Jews who are stuck in the middle of Jerusalem, surrounded by armies. And they're going to remember this verse, and it's going to give them fantastic peace. And what's it say? He that endures to the end will be delivered. You Jewish believers, you're not all going to die. You won't all be martyred. But if you are there, when I come back, I'm going to deliver you. And you know the story. We deal with it in the third series of tapes on prophecy. Jesus comes down from heaven, and where does he land? Right in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Praise God, and he delivers all the believers. Marvellous, wonderful story how he does it as well. Every single believer is delivered. Everyone. Praise God. And where do they go? They go through into the millennium where they people the earth. And they become the basis of the uh, population explosion in the millennium. And that's, that's a wonderful verse of great comfort to them. We're stuck in Jerusalem. Are we going to perish, God? No. If you've endured to the end, you're going to be delivered. Amen. Well, I don't think I need really comment anymore about that verse. Actually, that is blatantly obvious. And if you see in uh, the same in Matthew 10, you'll find the context is exactly the same. Read on a few verses after that, Matthew 10, 22, and you'll get the context. Fine. Another one. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Now I'll deal with this very quickly. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. Looks like spirit-filled believers, doesn't it? And then, notice verse 23, Will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Fine. Okay, what's the context here? Where are we? We're on judgment day, we are. On judgment day. Now, Philippians 11 tells you something about judgment day. That the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you know one thing, on judgment day every tongue's going to confess him Lord. Every tongue. Satan's going to confess him as Lord. Every demon's going to confess him as Lord. Every unbeliever's going to confess him as Lord. And when you get a passage dealing with the judgment day, of course they're going to call him Lord. Now that's the first thing I want to say. Okay? Let's deal with 22, verse 22. He says, not everyone. So you say, Lord, now? Some religious people say, Lord, today. You've got to be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's not what you say that counts. Ah, oh, but what about 22? Look, they've prophesied. 
dear, what else have they done? They've cast out devils. They've healed people and all the rest. Well, it's no problem for us. The Bible tells us that in the last day, there'll be terrible, deceiving spirits doing miracles and wonders all over the place. Many messiahs will come and say, I'm the Christ. That's what he says. And they'll deceive, if it were possible, which it is not, the very elect. And they'll try and attempt to do it. You see? Will they succeed? They won't. We've got a few of them around today. Do you know we have white witches... We have spiritualist healers who think that because they see people healed, that makes them automatically correct. Verse 22 deals with them. They're not. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Okay, well that's the context. And very easy. And you'll find several that actually deal with that. Category number four. And in this category, we come to um, six verses which... Actually, the people who are anti-eternal security should never quote. Never quote. There are verses that they ought to leave well alone. And we deal here with passages which exhort believers to be in fellowship. Passages which exhort believers to be in fellowship. And I'm beginning with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits and he does. Praise God. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now that's what it says. Fine. Now, first of all, some people say this passage is for unbelievers. Uh, They say that because in verse 4 it says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. And you'll read this in books, you'll find some very good books that say this. And they say, you see, the word taste doesn't mean to drink deeply. It means to take a sip. So all they do, it says, tasted of the heavenly gift. They take the heavenly gift, whatever that is, and they sip it. Well, it sounds good, doesn't it? So this, that's an easy way out, you see. This is unbelievers, and it's impossible to restore them. Well, what do you mean, restore them, if they're unbelievers? Uh, actually, for, bad, it's bad for them, actually, because in Hebrews 2.9, you've got the same word, taste, in exactly the same form used in Scripture. And it says, Christ tasted death for every man. And if they're saying he only sipped, he didn't really drink it, it's blasphemy. And of course, they don't really believe that. Not at all. So we discard that immediately. Uh, The anti-eternal security people also don't want this verse because apparently what it says is if you get out of fellowship with God and lose your salvation it's impossible to restore you. That's apparently what they say. And yet most of them spend most of their time trying to convince out-of-fellowship believers to get back into fellowship. Now apparently what this is saying is if they're out of fellowship and really have lost their salvation because of some sin let them go. Don't ever speak to them again. They'll never be restored. Well, I stand here as a testimony to the fact that can't be right. Because I have been away from the Lord for some time in my early Christian life. And here I am, glowing back. Praise God. And there are people listening to the tape, and there are people in this room who can say that is not the correct interpretation, because I disprove it. 
Right, well, what does it mean then? Well, we come on. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. First of all, there's something we've got to know, a rule. In any context where you get a word used, it always has the same meaning if repeated. And let's take the word repentance, found in verse 1. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. And here there are Christians who are out of fellowship because of their dead works. We'll see what they are in just a moment. They're doing something which is taking them out of fellowship. So an elementary principle is how to get back into fellowship. Do you know there are still believers in this fellowship who don't know how to get back into fellowship correctly? Oh, they know all about 1 John 1, 9. They don't know how to apply it. There are people who, having confessed their sins, still walk around as if they're under their sins and still act as if they are. And it's a disgrace. It's time to go back to the elementary principles of what be the word of God. Never should sin be allowed to defeat a Christian. You've got an advocate in heaven, as we saw last time. And God's greater. If your heart condemn you, who's greater than your heart? God is. Right. You pick yourself up, you brush yourself off, and you start all over again. Hallelujah. Forgetting those things that lie behind, I press on. Now, that's the principle. So, it's repentance from dead works. And where we see repentance used again, it also means repentance from dead works. And uh, here it is, verse 6. If they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about getting back into fellowship. Okay, let's take the passage then, verse 4. Now, first of all, this is about believers. How do we know that? Because of the Greek tenses in this passage. Now, if you lose me, get the tape and go back over this. Let's take the passage. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. In Greek, it's once and for all time enlightened. Once and for all. A proof of eternal security. And who have tasted once and for all of the heavenly gift. That is eternally secure believers in every part. Okay? And were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God. Now, I'm going to retranslate the passage because actually, if you see in verse 6, if they shall fall away, it's what we call an aorist participle in the Greek. An aorist participle. And in the Greek rules, the aorist participle comes at the beginning of the sentence, not at the end, as they put it here. So really, if you've got an RSV, they've translated it correctly. They begin with having fallen away, which is correct. The aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb. That's Greek grammar rule. Okay? So let's retranslate it and get this down. Having fallen away, it is impossible for those who were once and for all enlightened and have tasted once and for all of the heavenly gift and were made partners with the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the power of the world to come to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they are crucifying the Son of God afresh. Okay? Now that is a corrected translation. And if we miss out the bit in the middle, what do we end up with? We end up with a perfectly obvious statement. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they are crucifying the Son of God afresh. And what it's saying is, if a believer is constantly sinning, you can't get them back into fellowship. <laughs> well, of course. Of course not, because sin puts you out of fellowship. And we end up with a blatantly obvious statement of truth. It's impossible to restore someone back into fellowship as long as he continu continues to sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and refuses to get back in. That's elementary. And what's he got to learn? He's got to learn how to repent, how to get back into fellowship. 
the word seeing can be translated as long as. As long as you are constantly out of fellowship and constantly sinning and constantly refusing to get back into fellowship, you can't be restored and no preaching and no praying or anything else can get you back into fellowship. That is actually what he's saying here. Well, it's a perfectly obvious statement. And so we end up with something that's completely obvious to us all. All right, and that's all that that means at that particular point. And it's an appeal to the Jews. Now, what specifically were they doing that was getting them out of fellowship? Well, these Jews, having believed on Christ, were going down every day to the temple and they were killing and sacrificing a lamb in the temple. Now, you see, the lamb represented Christ. And so every day they were putting Christ to death again. And it got them out of fellowship. Why? Because if you live under the law now, you're out of fellowship permanently. Because you can't keep the law. And every day, off they went to the temple. The temple was still standing. And they were sacrificing a lamb in the middle of the temple. Now look, Jesus died for all our sins. A lamb is of absolutely no effect. Well, bear that in mind when we come to Hebrews 10, 26 which some say is a difficult verse. Hebrews 10, 26. Before we get into that, let's just see in Hebrews 10 some verses which prove that we cannot lose our salvation. Alright? Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. And we'll begin verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. You see, Jesus died for all your sins, past, present and future. And there's no other offering for sin. He did it all. There it is. And you are sanctified. Passive. Passive in the Greek. You didn't sanctify yourself. He sanctified you. This is a Bible study. To me it's active. I'm giving the Bible study. To you it's passive. You're receiving the Bible study. And here, sanctifying is passive. We're receiving the sanctification. Fine. Verse 14. For by one offering, that's when he died on the cross, he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Forever means forever. What? Until you sin next time? No. Until three weeks' time when you decide you're off God? No. Forever. Amen. Verse 17 and 18. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Why? He's covered every one. Why should he? Verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. If he's dealt with your sin past, there's no offering that you need for past sins. If he's dealt with your sin present, there's no offering, no more offering needed for that. And if he's dealt with your future, why go back to animal sacrifice? It's the same sacrifice that covers. There's no more offering for sin than that. And then we come on to Hebrews 10.26 and we see the same phrase. There's no more offering for sin. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And what they were doing, when they were sinning after being saved, they were off down the temple killing these lambs. He said, you can't do it. The same sacrifice is the one that will do you right the way through. Why turn back to lambs? They're not going to do you any good. It's the same sacrifice. Hallelujah. Now it's important to get it. Now isn't that obvious from the context? Of course it's obvious. Okay, but we've got to go on. And before we go on, let me just tell you something. The book of Hebrews was written just a few years before the Romans invaded the land of Israel. And they were coming in to judge the Jews. And from AD 66 to 73, the Romans massacred the Jews. 
All right? And this was written a few years before it, and it was the last appeal to the Jewish Christians to get back into fellowship. Why? Because if they weren't in fellowship, they were going to die together with the rest of the Jews. That's the sin unto death. That's the branches cast forth and withered. They were going to die and be judged in their flesh. And do you know, all the believers who were in fellowship, they escaped. They went in the opposite direction. I've talked about this elsewhere. In the opposite direction. Those believers, however, who were still sticking to the temple and staying close to it to sacrifice their lamb, they were caught with the Roman armies all the way around and they died together with the unbelieving Jews who were called the adversaries. And it's saying you get back into fellowship and stop sacrificing lambs or what's the alternative? I'll tell you, maximum discipline from God is the alternative. And he goes on, verse 7, but a fearful, certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversaries. He that despised, this is verse 28, Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And do you know in the Old Testament, both believers and unbelievers, if they did certain sins, they died under the law. The unbelievers went to torment, the believers went through to paradise. And here he's saying the same. Listen, even in the Old Testament he said, believers and unbelievers were dealt with the same way, under the law. And if you stay out of fellowship, you'll be taken up in this judgment that's coming upon the whole of Israel. There we are. And he says, verse 29, Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance is mine, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. That's the Jews, and in this case, the out-of-fellowship believers. Well, it's no problem, you see, get it in context. Number five, we come to the miscellaneous passages. And I'm going to deal with two, and I'm going to end on the second one, because it's a marvellous promise. The first one, I don't know how it ever got used as anti-eternal security, because it says nothing about losing your salvation. But you'll find it quoted. It's a very popular verse, this. And it's in, found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3 and verse 5. And here the Lord Jesus has written a letter to the church of Sardis, and in the church, even in these days, there were believers and unbelievers all mixed up. There were religious people who were not born again and born again ones all in the same congregation. So he's writing specifically to the believers. And what does he say? He that overcometh, all right, he that overcometh. And you'll find books and hear sermons on how to be an overcomer. Now I've got news for you. John wrote, that he took it down by dictation, the book of Revelation. And in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, don't turn to it, I'll read it to you. He defines who an overcomer is. And surprise, surprise, it's every person who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are an overcomer. Now here it is. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Of course you do. The world thought it had you. The devil thought he had you. And then you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they found they didn't have you. You overcame them. The world's crucified to us. Hallelujah. So, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And if you haven't got it, he repeats it in verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Then you're an overcomer. And if you're an overcomer, which you are, 
There are three promises made to you. And what are the three promises? One, he shall be clothed in white raiment. You're going to be righteous. That's the righteousness of Christ. You're going to come into it when you get to heaven. You may even come into it down here on earth. That's the aim of the Christian life. And the second promise, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. He's promising you that your name won't be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. What's that? He's saying you're eternally secure. I promise. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer, and he won't blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. There's no mention here of blotting anyone's name out of the Lamb's book of life, and they all quote it. That's an absolute promise. That's one for us. Praise God. If you're a believer, your name won't be blotted out. Never. Never. Do you see that? I can't understand how on earth it got into their list, I'm sure. Because it does not say anything here about, but to him that doesn't overcome, his name will be blotted out. It doesn't say that. It says if you're a believer, your name won't be, and I promise. Well, hallelujah, that's glorious. But I will confess his name, third promise, before my father and before his angels. Okay, well that's one for us. Now to finish on, I'm going to deal with a passage found in 1 Timothy. And this is a glorious and wonderful passage. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. And beginning verse 11. And I'm so glad verse 13 is in there, because if it weren't, people would go wrong on this. Beginning verse 11. It is a faithful saying. Now here, Paul in 2 Timothy 2.11, is quoting probably a hymn that they used to sing in the day. He's quoting it in his letter. Um, I don't think it will fit in with any of our rhythms that we have today, but uh, it's certainly a wonderful hymn. It is a faithful saying, saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Amen. We all agree with that. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Amen. We all agree with that. And then we come, if we deny him... He will also deny us. Well, well. But don't stop there, because verse 13 then says something marvellous. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And if someone quotes that to you, if we deny him, he'll deny us. You must say, now, brother, it goes on to say, if we are faithless, yet he remains faithful. And if they're asking you to explain verse 12, you ask them to explain verse 13. <laughs> All right, let's have a game of tennis scripturally here. Actually, the word deny in verse 12 is used in the sense of denying some blessing or some benefit, as you would deny your children sweets if they disobeyed you. You see, you deny their right to have their sweets or their comics this week. Or they can't see Batman or whatever else <laughs> is on. You see? You're denying them some blessing or some reward. And he's saying, now listen, you Christians, if you deny me the blessing of your life, if you deny me your, the use of your body as my temple, if you deny me a holy and upright life that I want in you, and if you deny me the right to use you an ambassador, I'll tell you this, I'll deny you all the blessings that you shall get in this life. Don't expect the joy, don't expect the peace, don't expect all the marvellous things if you're out of fellowship with me, because you won't get them. I denied them to you because you're denying me. Isn't that true? It is true. If you're out of fellowship, you're among the most miserable of men. You really are. You've got nothing as far as God is concerned. 
I think that's lovely. It drives me back into the arms of Jesus quick. Hallelujah. Now that's what it's saying. But notice what it goes on to say. And here we're dealing with faith. Here we're dealing with the man who temporarily seems to lose faith in Jesus. Does he lose his salvation? Oh no. Look, if we believe not, and actually the if there is if and it's true, number one. And that shows us that actually there were some around who had lost their faith in the time of Paul and in the time of Timothy. If we believe not, what's he going to say? Then watch out, because there's eternal fire and you're going to be damned. He does not. If we are faithless, yet he abideth faithful. And you see, my salvation is his work. And as long as he remains faithful, I'm all right. Praise God. He remains faithful. Why? Notice what it says. He cannot deny himself. And deny there is used in the same sense as in verse 12. And here is the glorious truth that I want to end on. We are the rewards given to Jesus for his good work. Jesus has worked so well in salvation. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. He that's begun a good work in you shall bring it to completion. And I'm his reward. And I'll tell you this, because he's done a good work, he's not going to be denied his reward. Hallelujah. And that's why he remains faithful. Nothing to do with how good you are or anything else. And if I'm faithless, he's still going to get me as his reward. Praise God. That's what it means. Hallelujah. Isn't that glorious? And I'll tell you, the work of salvation is the work of God. It's not your work at all. And he's going to be rewarded with you whether you like it or not. Because he's earned it. He's done such a good job in saving you. Believe me, some of us had sins up to our eyes. And he's done such a marvellous work that we can stand here sanctified and loved and cleansed. Praise his wonderful name. And one day he's going to get us all at his marvellous reward up in heaven. And he won't be denied it because he deserves it. Hallelujah. Every bit. There we are. He can't deny himself because he's done such a good job in it all. Now, isn't that marvellous? Isn't that wonderful? We're his reward. We're the reward for his labour. And that's what it means when it says in the Old Testament, he shall see the seed or the fruit of his labours and shall be satisfied. And here we are, gathered up into heaven. And the Father says, they're all yours, Jesus. You've earned every one of them. Go on, take them. For me, we come back to a challenge of holiness. If I'm his reward, I want him to be rewarded now. I want holiness in my life and I want fruitfulness in my life to give him some pleasure now. He's worked so hard and he's worked so well. I want to give him back some of the rewards that he's earned so richly. Hallelujah. Well, I said I'd end on there. I just want to read Jude 24 and 25 again. Just to finally end. Jude 24 and 25. And you'll notice who's doing the work. Not you. But him. Keep this always in mind. He's faithful. He's lovely. And we ought to love him with all our hearts. Because he's loved us so much. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able, is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who's got the joy? He's got the joy. Hallelujah. To the only wise God, our Saviour,
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name, Father, that the three and a half hours that we've had on eternal security may lead us into wonderful worship and praise. You are magnificent and wonderful. We offer you our lives. Take them and use them in all holiness. In Jesus' name. Amen.